Good morning, brothers, sisters, friends. Um, today is our Christmas program, or tonight is our Christmas program. So we're going to have a Christmas-themed day. Uh, and in fact, we're going to have two more Sundays just like this. Christmas falls on the 25th this year, and then we've got one other week in between here and there, so we're going to have three Christmas-themed Sundays, today being the first. Um, I've really been a bit blown away by the things that have been brought up uh, in both the Lord's Supper this morning um, and then some things that Tim mentioned as well. Um, They really, really go well with some of the things we're going to be considering this morning. And that's the way that the Spirit of God works. And it's a confirmation to me. It's a help to me. Um, And as you'll see, if you were at all uh, aware of what was going on this morning in the Lord's Supper, and you take a look at the outline that I'm going to put up there, you'll see that some of it has already been covered, um, perhaps from different angles, but very helpful nonetheless. We're going to consider this morning, again, the Christmas story, the incarnation. The Bible says, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifested in the flesh. That's what we're going to consider this morning. It is a grand, grand subject, worthy of three Sundays, worthy of much more than that. And of course, we come together each Sunday to remember the Lord, uh, particularly in his death, but also, of course, we consider his birth week after week. One of the hymns we sing says, No subjects so glorious as he, no theme so affecting to us. Isn't that true? No subject so glorious as he, there is no theme so affecting to us. And that is true. If you're a believer here today, there's no theme, there's nothing out there that has affected you the way that the Savior has affected you. What I'd like to do is uh, read the account in Matthew. It's, uh, we're just going to read the account in chapter 1. And then we're going to go back. It's just for context sake. But then we're going to go back to an Old Testament scripture and consider uh, the incarnation. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, Being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's just ask God's blessing as we consider this. Our Father, we thank you. Again, for this uh, opportunity to come together this morning, we thank you for your word that you've given us. We thank you for the glorious truth found therein, for the reality of the 
the arrival of this one, your son, who came in the flesh. What a wonder. We've considered already some of the things concerning uh, the wonder of who he is this morning as we broke bread together. We ask your help now as we consider further the things written in your word. We give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are other, another, there is another account of the, the uh, incarnation of the Lord Jesus found in the Gospel of Luke. And it's a bit more lengthy. It has other uh, angles, other characters. Um, and I'm not going to go into that today. Again, we've got two more Sundays to consider. I'll leave some material for the others. And I'm sure you'll hear some of it tonight. But this is the subject this morning. He is not only the center of Christmas, and I'm going to talk about that, Lord willing, a little bit tonight, but he is the center of much more than just the Christmas season. He is the center of time and history. That's what Galatians chapter 4 says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Our calendar attests to it, doesn't it? That he's the center of time and history. The most spoken about the most preached about, the most controversial at times. This one, Jesus, in all of history, the center of the scriptures in Luke 24, he uh, expounds to them in all things, from all the prophets, the things concerning himself. He's the center of the scriptures. He's the center of the church. He is the foundation upon which we stand. He's the center of the gospel and Christianity. There is no gospel. There is no Christianity apart from Christ. He's the center of the Father's delight, Isaiah 42 says. He's the center of the Godhead, the Trinity. He's the second person there, we learn in Matthew 28. Colossians 1 tells us that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he is the center of heaven and eternity. We read that in Revelation 5. In the midst of all this glorious scene, the throne and all that's there, in the midst of it all stood a lamb. He's the midst of heaven in eternity. And so the one we're considering this morning, worthy to be considered. Turn back, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 49. The verses there in Matthew were more so for context's sake. If you could title the message this morning, If you can read it there, we've got a snowflake in the way, which we've had for a few meetings now. A divine calling. A divine calling. That's what we're going to consider this morning. But there are many, you know, who claim a divine calling from God. There are many even alive here on earth today that have claimed a divine calling. Some special revelation. There have been perhaps thousands through history that have claimed a divine calling from God. I just out of curiosity, started to look at some of the other, if you want to call them religious leaders and so forth. And so many of them born into the world on a particular date and at some future date claim some type of divine revelation. Muhammad, the so-called prophet, Joseph Smith. Uh, 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 there were, there's, there's a list of many. Mary Eddie Baker, Mother Teresa, they all claim at some point that after having been born into the world, God gave them some special revelation. But this one is different. And so I want to consider this divine calling. What's unique about it? Not just unique compared to the others, although that's true too, others who claim a divine calling. But what's special about it? What what really hits home as we consider the calling, the divine calling of this one, Jesus? 
First, I want to consider the time of his calling. This is unique. There are others in the word of God that have had, a, uh, in, in this sense, as a time of a calling, a similar uh, calling. But this is very unique to the Lord. The time of his calling. That is, when was he called? Uh, secondly, we're going to consider the name of his calling. That is, what he was called. Thirdly, we're going to consider the manner of his calling. That is, how he was called. And what form did he come? And if you were here this morning, there was quite... Uh, 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 a bit of expounding done on the manner in which he came. We considered him this morning. You are my servant. And we'll consider a little bit about that. And then lastly, the purpose of his calling. That is why he was called. Isaiah 49, 1 says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. The Lord has called me from the womb. His calling was from the Lord. One of the evidences we have that his calling was true, was divine, was from the Lord, is that he was called from the womb. Before he could ever do anything of himself, before he could ever make a claim of himself, before he could ever stand upon his own two feet, before he could ever speak a word, before he could, could ever do anything of himself, it was made clear this one was called by the Lord, a divine calling. It's interesting to note, as you consider the accounts of the Incarnation, how many were convinced of his divine calling before he ever entered the scene. His parents were convinced, were sure of that. The angel appeared there to Mary. I'm sure we'll hear some about it tonight. She was convinced, Lord, let it be done to me as you have said, as the angel appeared. Joseph was convinced. He was minded to put her away secretly, but he decided not to. Why? Because of the revelation from, from God, from the angel, explaining to him what had been done. His parents were convinced of his divine calling. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they too were convinced of his divine calling. If you read some of, of uh, the, the words that Zacharias says, he was convinced, no doubt, as he proclaims, he gives some prophecy regarding his own son, John the Baptist, and about this one, Jesus. Elizabeth, you remember, as Mary entered her house, her babe leapt in her womb. And she said, what, 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 what is this, that, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She was convinced too. There was a man named Simeon in Luke chapter 2. He too was convinced that the Lord, Jesus, this one, had a divine calling. There was a woman named Anna, a prophetess. She too was convinced, as you'll read in Luke chapter 2, that his calling was divine. It was true. It was from the Lord. And there are some, you know, if you're a critic, you might say, well, his parents, they were related to him. You know, maybe they liked the attention, like these air balloon parents. They say their child floated up in the air somewhere just for the attention of it. Or maybe it was uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were related too. You know, they had some vested interest there because their son was John the Baptist, the critics may say. Uh, this man, Simeon, he was old. He was looking for, for, for the Messiah. He, 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 surely he would have just uh, taken anything that would come to him because he was looking for one. And this woman, Anna, well, she was lonely and old. And, and who knows what she was thinking. But there were others, you know. What about these, these shepherds? out keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel appears to them. 
and, if you will, rocks their world. Their, 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 their life is turned upside down from that moment forward. They drop what they're doing. They say, let us go to Bethlehem to see these things which have come to pass. They're totally convinced that Jesus is divinely called of God. What about the wise men? The wise men traveling, the wise, wise men, if you will, traveling from a far country to come to find this one, Jesus, who somehow, by some revelation, they were made known that he too was called of God all before he ever spoke a word, all before he could ever stand upon his own two feet. He was called out from the womb. There is another, you know, brought to my attention, convinced of his divine calling, having no vested interest himself, no relation, no reason to, to, to say otherwise. His name was King Herod. He too, convinced of the divine calling of this one Jesus in order to protect his own throne, would go out and do things that are unimaginable to massacre thousands, who knows, perhaps hundreds of thousands of young boys because he was convinced of the divine calling of Jesus. All before he ever spoke a word, all before he could stand upon his own two feet, he was called out from the womb. It's a wonder. It's a wonder that God would work these things together as you read the accounts and you see how God worked through the plan of God unfolding. Of course, the incarnation was just the beginning. But when you see all the prophecies that were fulfilled, all the pieces that had to fall into order, it was all done. All before he could ever speak a word, he couldn't make any claim of himself. God made it known. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God put his stamp upon him. He was called out from the womb. It says then in verse 2, or I'm sorry, in the second part of verse 1, from the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. What was he called? This is the name of his calling. Well, we considered this morning that there were perhaps names given to him. But the name given to him was Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It was not a, a name assumed by him. It was a name with a meaning. He shall save his people from their sins. Jehovah saves. It was a name given to him, given to him by God himself, not assumed by the Savior. Names, you know, in the Bible carry great significance. If you look back through uh, Old Testament times, even New Testament times, you'll see that even more so than nowadays, names carried great significance. A name spoke of someone's character. It told us something about who they were. And this one, the Savior, was given a name. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment. To illustrate it a little bit, in 1 Samuel, it says of King David that he behaved more wisely than all the other servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. Names were very, very significant. You might note in today's day and age that you may not find many many children named Cain 
or Judas or Jezebel. Because there is a meaning associated with these names that not many people want to, I say not many, not any, but not many. Not many people want to associate with because of the meaning associated with the name. He was given a name. Jehovah saves. We considered that this morning. Given a name with meaning. He was. He also gave meaning to a name, didn't he? As we look back upon this man, Jesus, we can see that God gave him a name. Uh, The name spoke of his purpose. Jesus, Jehovah saves. But we also look back, and as we take count of his life, of who he was, of what he did, he gave meaning to that name. And we look back upon this one who's done so much for us, from the incarnation to his existence here on earth, to his death, to his resurrection, he gave meaning to that name. On a practical note, it's interesting to know that God in the Old Testament placed his name upon a place. He placed his name upon a place. Originally with the tabernacle, his name was placed there. But in a much greater sense, it was placed upon the temple. If you read the account in 1 Kings as that temple is being, uh, is being constructed, you'll read over and over that this would be a house to the name of the Lord. 1 Kings 8.29, Solomon says, speaking to the Lord God, saying that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there. My name shall be there. He put his name on a place. But when it comes to New Testament times, we know that God no longer has put his name upon a particular place, but he's put it upon a people, a people. And that is you and I. That is each one who truly knows the Lord Jesus as Savior. There are many, you know, who claim the name of the Lord. Perhaps some deceived, they're deceived themselves, they've deceived others. But we know that God has put his name upon a people. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 tell us about that. Uh, um, I'm going to read the verse so I don't misquote it. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. God had put his name on a place in the Old Testament. But it come New Testament times, post-Jesus, his name is put upon a people, upon you and I. In 1 Kings, it talks about this man, Solomon. And there's a, a woman brought up named the Queen of Sheba. And it says in 1 Kings 10.1 that the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She heard of the fame of Solomon. It was concerning the name of the Lord. At this point in time in Solomon's life, he had famed the name of the Lord. She heard of his fame. What about you and I? We claim the name of the Lord, don't we? There are many out there who claim the name of the Lord. Do you fame it? Do you shame it? There are two places to be when it comes to the name of the Lord. You will give glory to that name. You will fame that name. Others will look and say, that's one that belongs to him. But at times, of course, we know that we all falter. We all fail to some extent. 
And it's a devastating thing to bring shame to the name of the Lord. The name given to him there, his name shall be called Jesus. You know, when that temple fell, it shamed, brought some shame to the name of the Lord because that's where his name was put. And the same is true for you and I. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. He didn't assume the name upon himself. He didn't take it for his own. Before he could ever speak a word, God gave him a name. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jehovah saves. That's his name. Then I want to consider the manner of his calling. We considered some of this this morning, and I was a bit blown away. I think if I didn't have Jude sitting on my lap, I may have just stood up and spoken my message at that time because it really, really just brought home these things that I had been considering, the manner of his calling. Look at what verse 3 says. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel. You are my servant. This is the manner in which he came, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He came in the form of a servant. Does it boggle your mind? Boggles my mind. And as I begin to consider, like we did this morning, why was it necessary? Why a servant? I mean, why why did he have to take that form upon himself? And if I could put two answers to it that I believe are, are biblically supported, it's that it's because this is exactly what God had planned, And it's exactly what man needed. It's exactly what God had planned and exactly what man needed. Man didn't need a king to come to rule over them, to give them more rules, to give them uh, boundaries. The children of Israel already showed us that all the laws and all the kings wouldn't help a bit. They'd still fail. Man didn't need any good social workers. We didn't need a friend. We didn't need uh, uh, someone to come do good works. We didn't need a new religious leader. We needed one who would come as Savior. And for him to be Savior, he had to take the place of a servant. For him to be Savior, he had to take the place of a servant. Last year uh, at the Christmas program, uh, Brother Larry Price spoke a message and he, he, I don't know if it was the title of his message, but I just remember him saying, have you lost the wonder? Have you lost the wonder? The wonder that the King of Kings would come to this earth in the form of a servant. Think about this. Throughout his life, having taken this form as a servant and coming in the likeness of men, throughout his life, he continuously continuously, continuously forsook his own will. He would not impose his own will upon anyone, but subjected himself to the will of the Father. Every time mankind, primarily influenced by Satan, would seek to crush him, would seek to get rid of him, would seek to stumble him at times. There were so many accounts where, where things from the very beginning when you see King Herod trying to take his very life. Yet he assumed the form of a servant. He would not impose his own will, but he subjected himself to the will of the Father. But this is the amazing thing. This is the amazing thing. It was for the glory of God. Why? 
It was for the glory of God. It says, "In you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. It was for the glory of God because as he went throughout life from the very beginning, as he laid a helpless, defenseless, unable to speak, unable to walk infant in that manger. And there was this king out there, powerful, wicked, looking to to destroy him. But he wouldn't impose his own will. The Lord Jesus remained in that form, the form of a servant. Why? For the glory of God. Because as the plan unfolded, as things played out, it brought more glory to God. And every time man tried to crush him, every time man tried to stumble him, every time man tried to to expose something that wasn't even there, it brought glory to God. Because he continuously subjected himself to the Father's will. This was God's plan before the foundation of the earth and it was unfolding. And every time he he proved true to his form of a servant, subjecting himself to the will of the Father, forsaking his own will, he would not impose it upon anyone. It brought more glory to God because it all unfolded exactly the way God wanted it to unfold. It all played out exactly the way God said it would play out. And so he took the form of a servant. I mean, as I begin to think about this, and we begin to talk about it this morning, I'm just overwhelmed. Why the form of a servant? Because it brought glory to God. How did it bring glory to God? Because this was God's plan. And the more he subjected himself to the will of the Father, the more he forsook his own will, the more glory it brought to God. And imagine, Philippians 2 says... Uh, uh, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. We heard about that. Imagine the glory to God in that day. When every knee looks at this man, Jesus, the servant, the one who was despised and rejected of men, the one who had no will of his own, it seemed, a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep before a shear, silent, so he opened not his mouth. And as they look at this one, they see, it was the Lord of glory. Glory to God. Glory to God. Because this was His plan. And though they tried to stop it, though they tried to snuff Him out, it just brought glory to God because it all played out exactly the way God intended it to play out. Look, if you will, this just caught my attention. Luke chapter 2. This man, Jesus, he made a humble entrance into earth, didn't he? It was quite a humble entrance. The entrance of a servant. Luke chapter 2. And it says this. Verse 10. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day In the city of David, this is Luke 2, verse 10, starting at verse 10, now in verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Could you imagine a more humble entrance into earth than this? Not the son of a queen but the son of this young woman, Mary. The son of a blue-collar worker, 
a carpenter named Joseph. Now, we know that the, the conception was divine. But his parents, nothing to write home about, you could say. No room for him as they traveled back to Bethlehem. And so they find their way into, we assume, a, a stable of some kind, uh, some place where there are animals, because he's laid in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough. Sometimes I think of it, as I was a child, I thought maybe it was a fancy name for a cradle, but it's not. It's a feeding trough. It's where animals eat out of. Animals, like pigs and cows and all these various farm animals. That's where he was laid. A humble entrance. But look at the next verse. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God and the highest. A humble entrance. Why? For the glory of God. Glory to God in the highest. Could you ever picture a more humble entrance into earth than this? Helpless, defenseless, baby, lying in a feeding trough? A blue-collar father, a young mother, no status, no fame. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God and the highest. A humble entrance, a servant-like entrance. Look, if you would, at John 13. Now, we know, if you know about the Lord Jesus and you've considered some of his life, you know that he not only made a humble entrance, but he lived a humble existence here on earth, didn't he? He lived a very humble existence. And this caught my my eye as well. John 13, verse 31 says this, So, when he had gone out, that was Judas, Jesus said, Now, The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Glory to God. But what precedes this verse? We considered this morning. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Taking that humble place, taking that place of a servant, bowing to the feet of sinful man, to wash their feet. Why? For the glory of God. That's why. Because as he continued to subject himself to the Father's will, not imposing his own will, it brought more and more and more glory to God. A humble entrance, a humble existence, that of a servant, and a humble exit. Well, we won't consider, but we consider every Sunday morning. It was quite a death that he died, wasn't it? Quite a humble servant-like death. I already quoted. Led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 42. I'm going to go back to Isaiah anyway, so I'm just going to read these couple of verses because these caught my attention as well. In Isaiah 42, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. The place of a servant. That's the manner in which he came. And I tell you, as I, I hope that you entered in in some degree this morning as you begin to consider the form he took, why he took that place, how he continued continuously submitted to the will of the Father. 
It can blow your mind. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That was the way in which he came. You know, I want to just turn over to one passage because it really, regarding this, it's in 1 Corinthians 1. It really expounds upon this. Sorry for taking you back to Isaiah 49, but there are multiple, multiple passages. Philippians 2 speaks of him in this way. Um, It's all throughout the Word of God, his his humility, his servant-like behavior. It says this in verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The cross was the pinnacle. It was the ultimate example of his servitude. It was the ultimate demonstration of his humility, of him subjecting himself to the will of the Father, not imposing his own will. And I know I've repeated that. I'm not crazy. I'm repeating that for for a reason. In the garden he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Subjecting himself to the will of the Father. The ultimate demonstration, the ultimate example was the cross. And to those who are perishing, if you haven't noticed, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. As you go around and you present to some the message of the cross, it's utter foolishness. It's, it's, it's just silly. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Isn't that true? It's the power of God. And I'm not going to go into it too much, but it just begins to explain in 1 Corinthians 1 how all of the wisdom of this world, it's brought to nothing compared to this plan of God. It's brought to nothing. The the Son of God coming as the servant, the sinless, spotless Son of God, coming as a servant to be the Savior, He, it, it just blows the doors wide open. The wisdom of this world brought to nothing. They can't understand it. They can't enter into it. But it's for the glory of God because one day they will look back and they'll see that this was of God, that this man Jesus who took this form, He is the Lord of glory. And on a practical note, you know, for us, we, we know in First Peter 2 it says, He left us an example that we should follow in His steps. If we're to bring glory to God, we've got to take the form of a servant. That's the reality. First Corinthians 1, where we are, it says, uh, the bottom line in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in His presence, but of Him you were in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. He became all of this. Once you understand it, once you see it, He became all of that to you. That, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And so he took the form of a servant. Why? Because he was going to be the Savior. Why? Well, because he had to. There was no other way. And ultimately, why? Well, for the glory of God. And lastly, there is a great purpose in his divine calling. 
It says in verse 5, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Tim mentioned it this morning. Not just to the Jews. That was, that was part of it, to bring Jacob back to him. That's what it says. But look at verse 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. Why? That you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This was his purpose. This was his purpose. He did good works, but he wasn't just a doer good. He did perform miracles, but he didn't just come to be a miracle worker. He was a good preacher, but he didn't just come to preach. He, he, he had wonderful words to say, but he didn't just come to give wonderful words. He fed the, the, the hungry, but he, he didn't just come to be a social worker. That wasn't his purpose, though he did some of those things. But his purpose was to be salvation to the ends of the earth. We didn't need a king at this time. We didn't need someone to, to coach us. We didn't need a religious leader. We didn't need any of that. We didn't need someone to show us how to do good works. We didn't need any more good people in the world. We needed a Savior. And that was His purpose for coming. That was His very purpose for coming. It's abundantly, abundantly clear that this was His purpose. I mean, it's just throughout the Word of God... Um, But there are many I am statements that the Lord Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And by the way, in regard to the Christmas message, we've already mentioned it. His name shall be called Jesus. Jehovah saves. That's his name. Salvation to the ends of the earth. But he makes multiple statements throughout the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. That's why he came. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. This was his purpose for coming. This was his purpose for coming. Some will acknowledge him as a prophet, and indeed he did prophesy. Some will acknowledge him as a historical figure, and that he was. Some will acknowledge him as a miracle worker, and that he did. But it wasn't his purpose. And if that's all you see in him, then you've missed the whole point. Because his purpose was for coming was salvation. Salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's what was proclaimed of him by the Father. The stamp was put upon him. This is Jesus who will save my people from their sins. God validated it when he raised him from the dead. There was no doubt that he had come to be the Savior of the world. This was his purpose. Now, I'm going to end with that. This evening, um, of course, is our Christmas program. And uh, we look forward to that. And I'm just going to continue with a few thoughts back in the Gospel of Matthew that maybe would be more of the birth. But I hope you see 
in his divine calling, what God has done to bring it about. The time in which he came, he was called out from the womb. And again, you know from a heavenly perspective that it didn't just begin there in the womb, but, but this was the plan of God from before the foundation, and so he was sent forth from the Father. But from a human perspective, it was from the womb he was called out. He was given a name. He took a form, the form of a servant. And he came for a purpose. It was to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's just pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your word that you've given to us. We thank you for uh, the truth found therein. I do realize that uh, myself and each who takes the opportunity to share these words, Lord, we fail, fumble, we're feeble. But we know that these are your words. You bring them to our, our heart and our thoughts are stirred up. And, and it's by you, by your spirit. And so I just pray that you would take your word and use uh, the things that have been addressed this morning, Isaiah 49, Matthew 2, and the multiple, multiple other references for your glory, that, that uh, we would be able to understand in a fuller way this one who came, the incarnation of the Son of God. What a wonder. We give you thanks, O Lord. We do ask your blessing upon us today. Ask your blessing upon the Christmas program this evening. And do pray that if there are some who uh, may be coming along, their hearts would be prepared to hear something of this one, the Savior, who came into the world. We do give you our thanks in Jesus' name.